We come today to the last sermon in our series of sermons on the Ten Commandments. So I'm going to ask you to turn, first of all, to Exodus 20, verse 17. And then we'll turn over to our New Testament passage for today, which is found in Luke 12, verses 13 through 21. First of all, the Tenth Commandment, found in Exodus 20, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. And then from Luke 12. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care, and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. A glimpse of death typically has a profound impact on the view of our lives. And we see this in so many ways, but especially in some of the stories that we love and even in this joyous Christmas season, I think of the story of A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. And as you know that story about greedy old Ebenezer Scrooge, you know as it comes to the close of that story, the Christmas of or the ghost of Christmas yet to come is sent to him. And one of the first things that this ghost of the future presents to him is a scene of a street in his neighborhood. And there on the street are two of his business associates. And they're talking and laughing, joking about the death of someone that they know and commenting on how they don't expect anybody will be coming to the funeral. And then the ghost of Christmas yet to come takes him to a dark and seedy side of town, to a grungy pawnbroker shop. And there, Ebenezer Scrooge witnesses his servants coming in with all of his belongings and all of his things that he had hoarded all of his life. And they're selling them to the pawnbroker for pennies on the dollar. And Scrooge is outraged because he's lived for these things, to acquire and to hold on to these things. And then the ghost of Christmas yet to come takes him to the graveyard. And there Ebenezer Scrooge finds the neglected tombstone, gravestone, that has his name written across it. 
glimpse of death had a profound impact on Ebenezer Scrooge. And it is a vivid picture of what Jesus says there in Luke chapter 12 about the foolishness of measuring your life in the abundance of your possessions. Do you sometimes wonder what people will say at your funeral? Think about it. What do you expect people will say at your funeral? As a pastor, I go to a lot of funerals, probably more than most, if not all of you. And so take my word as the word of a somewhat experienced expert. At funerals, people don't talk about the belongings of the deceased. They don't talk about their attainments and achievements in their careers. They don't talk about how they dressed or their social status at all. You know what they talk about? Almost exclusively, they talk about their character and their relationships. Their character and their relationships. That's why some funerals are very difficult funerals, because there's not much to say. But it's also why Christian funerals are often very joyous times in spite of the grief. I was thinking about that as I thought about the Ten Commandments, because as we've studied these commandments over these many weeks this fall, isn't that what we found out that the commandments are really about? They're about character and relationships. Character and relationships. As Jesus summarized the commandments, remember what he said. He said they're about loving the Lord your God and loving your neighbor. They're about relationships. And the last six commandments of the ten focus particularly on loving your neighbor. And we come to the last one of that set, and it says you shall not covet anything. It makes a list of several things your neighbor or a typical Israelite neighbor might have. A spouse, some land, some livestock. You shall not covet, but after that list, unless we think there are any loopholes or any exclusions, it says you shall not covet anything that is your neighbor's. Now, as we've looked at the other commandments, we've kind of always started from the outside and worked our way in, haven't we? We've looked at what it prohibits, the commandment, and then we've, as we've compared it to other scripture and put it in the context of scripture, we have found out that really what the commandments prohibit are not only the outward actions or outward offenses of the law, but also the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts that are at the root of our disobedience. But you notice right away when you look at commandment number 10 that it works the other direction, doesn't it? It doesn't go to the outward action, it goes right to the heart and says you shall not covet. This commandment not only goes to the root of disobedience, which is coveting, but it also speaks to us of the root of what real obedience is. What is the motivation for obedience in life? And really, this commandment, more than any of the others, goes right to your heart and says, what do you want in life? What do you really care about? What gets you out of bed in the morning? 
What motivates you? What is the desire of your heart? That's what it addresses very, very directly. So let's talk about coveting for a second. It's not a word that we use in normal, everyday language very often. And you may think you know what coveting means, but I do want to dissect it a little bit because I want to be very clear about what coveting is so that we might know how we can repent of it. Coveting, first and foremost, is a corruption of our desires. It's our desires gone wrong. It's important to recognize that because what's interesting, when you go to the Hebrew language of the commandments and you find out the original Hebrew word that's used there for coveting, it actually means literally to desire, to delight in, or to set your heart upon. And so it's really a neutral word, isn't it? It's not inherently sinful to desire something, or is it? What does this commandment really prohibit? Buddhists believe that the ultimate goal of their life is to reach nirvana. The word nirvana means extinguishing. And so for a Buddhist, their ultimate goal is to extinguish the fires of passion in their lives, to suppress their desires, to be able to live apart from their desires. How different that is from the Word of God. Because the Word of God teaches us that God hardwired into us our desires. Those are gifts from him. The desire for good food. The desire for drink. The desire for sexual intimacy. The desire for relationships. The desire for productive work. The desire for beauty. God wired us to want these things. And he delights to fulfill those desires in his way and in his time. Desire isn't wrong. As John Piper often reminds us, the problem isn't that we desire things too much, it's that we desire the wrong things. And that the desires that we should have in life aren't nearly strong enough. So what is it that the commandment is actually prohibiting then? If it's not desire itself, if it's not passion, if it's not desire, what's it prohibiting? Well, it mentions our neighbor's things. So is it prohibiting that I desire something that belongs to my neighbor? If I drive into my driveway and I happen to look over at my neighbor's yard and I notice that it's beautifully landscaped and mown and taken care of and all the weeds are gone... Is it wrong for me to think, wow, that's a beautiful yard. I would like to have a yard like that. Is it wrong for me to desire that? Or if I stop over at your house and I try out your brand new computer or your new iPhone and I think, wow, that's really great. I would really like to have one of those. Is that necessarily wrong? Of course not. So it's not even necessarily wanting something that my neighbor belongs to my neighbor. So what's the sin in coveting? Well, I think it's actually, as I've compared Scripture to Scripture and to the 10th commandment, I've come to the conclusion that coveting is a combination of two sins, really. The sin of lust, which in one sense is desiring something that God has withheld from me. Lust is desiring, strongly desiring something that God has either forbidden for me to have or has, for his wise purposes, withheld from me. And what you do is you add that together with envy. 
which is looking at some, some other person and the blessing that God has given to them and resenting them for it and wanting what they have to their detriment. And so you put lust and envy together, I think that what you end up with is coveting, what the scripture calls coveting. Matter of fact, when we lust after something that God has withheld from us, and then we see somebody else blessed with that very thing, what it does is intensify our sin. It intensifies the lust. Have you ever watched two toddlers in a room with 12 toys? The toy in that room that they want most is the one that's in the hands of the other toddler every time. That's because we're born with that nature. To covet. How do we covet? We covet when we think, I'm not satisfied with a husband or wife that God has given me. You know, I really like my neighbor's wife, my neighbor's husband. Why can't I have a wife or husband like that? Or maybe, you know, my neighbor's kids, you know, the grades they get, the honors they get at school, the accomplishments they have on the athletic field. Why can't my kids be like that? Why can't I have the corner office? You know, I deserve that raise that my coworker got last year. Boy, I wish our preacher preached as good as the guy down the street. <laughs> wow, that church is growing by leaps and bounds. Why can't my church grow like that? Coveting is resenting others for the blessing that God has given them while he's withheld it, withheld it from you. And really, and you think of it that way, isn't it the opposite of the love of Christ? The love of Christ rejoices in blessing others. Coveting hates your neighbor and your brother because God has blessed them for it. God has blessed them and you resent it. So coveting is not just desire, but it's a corrupt desire that is self-centered and is all about glorifying self. Secondly, coveting is the root of observable sins against our neighbor and against God himself. It's the root of other sins. 1 Timothy 6.9, you know this verse. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Now think about that. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Is it the love of dollar bills or coins? No. It's a love of what money does for you. A coveting of what more money in your life could do for you. A coveting of more power, of more freedom, of more authority, of more prestige, of more status. That's what the love of money is, and it's all about coveting. And Paul says that coveting is the root of all kinds of evil. Joseph's brothers coveted his coat of many colors and the approval of his father that it represented. And it led to him being sold into slavery and actually even to attempted murder against him. Achan coveted the spoils from the city of Jericho that had been forbidden to everyone. And it led to the defeat of Israel and the death of some of his fellow soldiers in the next battle. 
David coveted Uriah's wife when he saw her bathing on the housetop. And it led to adultery, deception, and murder. Ahab coveted Naboth's vineyard. And it led to theft by legal means and murder. Coveting is the root of many observable sins. And coveting is not the exclusive foible of the poor, is it? Coveting knows no social class. As a matter of fact, I think that probably wealthy people are more guilty of coveting across the board than poor people are. They once asked billionaire Nelson Rockefeller, asked him a very simple question one day, how much money does it take to be happy anyway? His answer, just a little bit more. No matter how wealthy you are, it's always just a little bit more. But coveting is not only hatred towards our neighbor, What the Bible makes clear is that coveting is an attack upon God himself. Listen to the language of Colossians chapter 3. Paul is describing sin here, but listen to the terms that he uses. Beginning in verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. He equates covetousness with idolatry and goes on to say, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. It's idolatry because it's putting something in this life, a person, a relationship, a status, a thing, putting it in the place of God. And once you've put it in the place of God, you've sought your your status, your purpose, your satisfaction, you've sought to seek it from that thing or that person or that status or that relationship, and actually you've put it over God in your life. And so it's idolatry. You desire this thing more than you desire God himself. Satan was in fellowship with God at one time, Satan was one of the most glorious creatures of God's creation. But he valued God's position, God's status, God's glory, more than he valued his relationship with God himself. And he rebelled and he fell. The Bible makes it clear that the very first sin of mankind was a sin of coveting. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, it says, So when the woman saw the tree, that the tree was good for food, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the center of the Garden of Eden, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. That word where it says there in Hebrew that she saw the tree was to be desired to make wise, That word desire is the same Hebrew word that the 10th commandment uses when it says you shall not covet. She coveted what God had forbidden. And she coveted what Satan had promised it would give her. Freedom to live apart from God. Freedom to seek the glory that only God deserves. Freedom to be independent. She coveted it. And it led to the fallen misery that we all live in. 
So when you think of the depth of the offense of coveting in the eyes of God, it helps you understand that passage we read earlier from the Apostle Paul, doesn't it? I mean, Paul was a Pharisee. Paul was a teacher of the law in Israel. Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees, he says. Righteous in the eyes of men. And I'm sure many days Paul went through the law and he went through the Ten Commandments and he said, I'm not an idolater. I worship Yahweh, the true God of Israel. I'm not a Sabbath breaker. I keep all of the rabbinical laws against Sabbath keeping. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not a thief. I'm not a murderer. But you almost get the sense that one day he read more carefully commandment number 10. You shall not covet. And he realized exactly what we've been talking about here this morning. That's talking about an attitude of the heart that he couldn't deny. I think Romans 7 Quite honestly, in order to understand Romans 7, you need to understand that, from my perspective, that that is an autobiography of Paul. That's Paul describing for you the time of his conversion. That's Paul saying, I thought I was alive in the law, but then the Holy Spirit opened my eyes. And I really understood the law. And particularly, take you back there to Romans 7 again and just read that verse for you again. He says, For I would have not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. I think the 10th commandment brought about the conversion of Paul. He understood that he was a sinner for the first time. That he had no hope. That's why when you get to the end of Romans 7, he says... Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? That's where he was before he understood who Christ was and what Christ had done for him. Woe is me, he's saying. I am lost. I am under God's judgment. I am bound for hell forever because I'm a coveter. And once I embraced that truth, I began to understand I'm also an adulterer and a thief and an idolater. Paul at that point was ready for the gospel. He was ready to hear about Jesus Christ, not just as a righteous man, but a redeemer, one who died in our place to bear the penalty, God's wrath, that our sin of coveting and every other sin, all our other breaking of the Ten Commandments, Christ paid the price in full. And Paul, for the first time, understood what real justification means. Being declared righteous because of what Christ did for him at the cross. And not only that, if you read what he really says, let me take you back to chapter 8 again of Romans. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. He understood the gospel, he embraced the gospel, and he became truly alive. And the result of becoming alive by the Holy Spirit is that his heart was changed. He was given a new heart when God regenerated his soul. 
and new desires. And so he goes on in verse 5 to say, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. God gave him that gift because of what Christ did for him. And that's offered to all you who covet today. But having received that, and now, hopefully all of you, being justified by faith in Christ alone, the question becomes, how do you change? There's so many of those desires that still lurk in your heart. How do we repent of coveting? Well, let me ask you first, what's the opposite of coveting? Tom mentioned it this morning. It's contentment. Contentment is the, obvious, the opposite of coveting. Living in a state of contentment with what God has given you. Paul called that the secret of being joyful and satisfied in life, whether in plenty or in want. And think about it. Isn't, isn't it a heart filled with contentment that enables you to stop resenting your neighbor for what he has that you don't have, And frees you up to bless your neighbor. Because that's what the love of Christ is. And that's the love of Christ that's planted in your heart with that new heart he gives you because of his saving work at the cross. You want to bless your neighbor instead of resenting your neighbor. Well, there's two steps in that process for repenting of coveting. The first step is theological. And don't let that term scare you if you don't see yourself as a theological person or don't see yourself as someone who understands deep doctrine. All I mean is, it's a worldview transformation. It's a radical change in how you look at yourself, how you look at God, and how you look at the world. It's, first of all, a change in your perspective. And without that change in perspective, step two will never happen. Step two is a change in what you pursue in life. But you got to start with your head first, because your head affects your heart. You've got to have a change in your worldview. You have to develop an eternal kingdom perspective on your life. Let me take you to Psalm 73. We read that responsively earlier in the service, but let me just remind you of the content there. Asaph was a worship leader in Israel, and he wrote this psalm about a time when he was consumed with coveting. He was in spiritual depression because coveting had overwhelmed his soul. He says, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He looked at his neighbor, his sinning neighbor, his wicked neighbor, his irreligious neighbor. And he saw that God had blessed him in spite of his sin. That his body was strong and healthy. That he had many, many possessions that Asaph didn't have. That his life was easy. Didn't seem to have any struggles. He says in verses 12 and 13, Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain I have kept my heart clean. He is consumed with bitterness and coveting. How did he get straight in life? How did he get his heart right? How did he begin to repent of this coveting that was destroying him? Look at verses 16 and 17. 
says, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God and then I discerned their end. He went to church. He went to the temple. He gathered with God's people to sit under the teaching of God's word, just like you're doing this morning. And there he was reminded that God is on the throne, that God is all-powerful, that God is sovereign, that nothing happens apart from his decree. He was reminded that God is good and faithful to his people and that God has a plan to redeem his people and to bring them into his kingdom and to bless them as his sons and daughters, as princes and princesses of the kingdom forever. That's what he found out at church. It's good theology. Changed his perspective. Changed his view of life. And particularly it changed his view of the wicked. And he understood that their blessing was only for a moment. He goes on to say, Truly you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin, how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Yeah, they're living the high life right now, but in the scheme of eternity, blink of an eye. I'm not going to live for that blink of the eye. I'm not going to set my heart on the things that are going to turn to dust and blow away momentarily. What, did he, what else did he find at church? Look at verse 23. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. He ran right back into the embrace of his God, his creator, his provider, and his redeemer. And he set his heart on God. You see, that's where the real source of contentment is. Is saying, you know what? God is enough. And God's plan for me is good and I trust him. Psalm 63, David says, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. Your steadfast love is better than life. My soul clings to you. Does that characterize your life? Is that what you're driven by? Is that what gets you up in the morning? To be close to God? To draw near to him? To cling to him? Is he your treasure? Your highest good in life? Which brings me to the second step of repenting, which is to invest in the treasure of his kingdom. Seek the kingdom first. Invest in the kingdom Chase after God with all your passion and strength. There is no higher good. In Luke 12, Jesus said, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. He equates covetousness with measuring your life by what you have and the status you have in this life. And then he tells that story about the man who had this huge harvest one year, totally unexpected, So much of a harvest that he he couldn't even store it all. So his solution was not to bless his neighbor with it, but to tear down his barns and build bigger barns so that he could be sure that he would have what he needed in this life for many, many years to come, and so that he could sit down, sit back, be at ease, eat, drink, and be merry, and be content without God. And God said to him, you fool. You fool. 
You die tonight. Where does that leave you? Same place Ebenezer Scrooge was when he sat before that gravestone. You need a changed heart. And that changed heart is not something you can produce from within yourself. Many a Christian knows the frustration of saying, I need to want God more. I need to seek the kingdom harder. But my heart is so cold. My desires are so weak. What am I going to do? That's the work of the Holy Spirit. It's his job to change your heart, to give you those desires. But what if he's not doing it? What if you're not seeing it? Well, it's kind of like any blessing that God gives you in life. He doesn't expect you to sit back in your easy chair and wait for him to zap you with it from on high. He wants you to go after it by faith, not by feeling. Go after it by faith. Ambition is a great thing. We tend to associate ambition with sin because we, we associate ambition with coveting. But let me tell you this this morning, one of the most important lessons. Ambition is a very good thing if what's driving that ambition is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. If that's what's driving you, you need to be more ambitious. You need to devote yourself, your resources, your time to the means that God has given. He's given you such easy means to grow in this desire in your life, this passion. He's given you his word. His word is powerful to transform you. He's given you his Holy Spirit as a constant companion and teacher. He's given you the sacraments. He's given you the fellowship of the church. He's given you all of these blessings. And in this society, we have them in abundance. Be more ambitious to know God and to serve him. Matthew 6 is Jesus' commentary on the 10th commandment. And he gives us there the cure for covetousness. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys or where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where is your treasure? What do you want in life? What gets you out of bed, especially tomorrow morning on a Monday? What are you after? And what do you want people to say about you when you die? Will your life be known for being rich in this world's treasure and status, or will it be known for being rich in love for God and for your neighbors? As I was preparing this message this week, I took some time off, or time out on Thursday afternoon to drive out to visit my good friend Dave. Dave is a prisoner. Dave is incarcerated for at least the next few years, maybe if things go worst-case scenario, next few decades. And I love Dave. Dave, uh, his, in, there are some aspects of his trial and his incarceration that really are unjust. Some people lied. He committed a crime. He's fully confessed that crime, and he's repentant of that crime, both before God and man. But there are some elements of his punishment, particularly, that, that seem to be very unjust. He wrestles with that, but Dave is growing. I send 
good, solid biblical literature into him on an ongoing basis, and I can't keep up with him. He keeps reading it before I can get more sent into him. And every time I sit down and talk with the scriptures with him, he's grown more and more, and he's being such a light in a, in a dark cesspool of human iniquity in that prison. But Dave, you know, he, talk, he asked me this week, what are you preaching on? And I talked about coveting. And he said, you know what, Dan? I covet your freedom. I got to thinking about that. You know, I'm about ready to gather with my much-loved family and friends in my nice, warm, luxurious home and pile gifts under the tree. And, you know, Dave, he lost his marriage over this. He lost his children. The only other person besides me that interacts with him is his mother. And he's got maybe a couple of Christian friends in that prison. And he says, I covet your freedom. I covet what you people on the outside have. And he says, I'll be honest with you, uh, it's eating me alive. I'm bitter. I get depressed because of it. What do I say? I'm the one he's, you know, what do I say to him? I took him to Job. I said, first of all, Dave, understand that you're not here because God's punishing you for your sins right today. That's not why you're here today. Yes, you sinned, and you've confessed that sin before God. And God has forgiven you because of what Jesus Christ did for you. you. God looks at you as righteous in his sight. You are not here today because God is punishing you for your sin, even though it feels like that many days. You're here because in God's sovereign good pleasure, you're where he wants you to be. As hard as it is, it's where he has called you to be. Just like Job was where God called him to be. Lost his family, lost his possessions, lost his friends, lost even his health. He had nothing. And Job said, the Lord has given, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He worshiped God in that circumstance. I said to Dave, now understand that by the end of the book, Job, Job's faith got weaker. Job's faith got shaken. And at the end of the book, Job says to God, why me? Why did, it, why did you put me through this? I need to understand. I love you, God. I trust you, but I need to understand. And God said, where were you when I created the world? And that's the only answer he got. And what God was saying to Job was, I'm your creator. I am the Lord of the universe. I am on the throne. I am sovereign. And I am good. And I have a great plan for your life. For all eternity, Job, this is a blink of an eye. Trust me. Wait on me. And that's what I said to Dave. It's hard. It's a blink of an eye, though. Trust in the Lord. Wait upon him. Be content, even in your circumstances. Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6. Keep your life free from the love of money. And be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the law of God. The law of God brings pain and conviction into our lives as born-again Christians. But it's a pain that leads to healing. Healing in the gospel gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Teach us to live every day by the gospel and empower us to live by the wisdom of your law. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.